no matter what Jay Powell and, and, and his kind of band of merry men and women say about how we don't feel that we've created any wealth inequality, it's, it's utter bullshit. Everybody looking at this can see exactly what you've done. It's a very short series of dots to join to prove that your monetary policy has led to stark wage disparity, to stark wealth disparity. The rich have gotten wholly richer. The poor have gotten far worse off. And, and for what? Hey, everyone. You're listening to On The Margin. I am your host, Michael Ippolito. And today we're going to be talking to Grant Williams, who's one of the original co-founders at Real Vision and currently runs Things That Make You Go Hmm. We cover a lot of really great macro-focused content in this conversation, ranging from Grant's early investing experience to what he thinks about central bank and the end game for money printing. We talk about his opinions on gold and Bitcoin. And finally, we talk about his framework for the fourth turning and some of the problems that America is facing as a nation and just the general trend of people moving away from institutions and the impact that's having not just on markets, but on everyone's life. If you're listening to us on Apple, please make sure to give us a rating and a review. If you're listening on YouTube or Spotify, just hit that subscribe button. All right, here's the show. Mr. Grant Williams, welcome to On The Margin. I'm so excited to have you as a guest. Hey, Michael, good to see you. Yeah, good to see you as well. I feel like I've heard you um, interview so many folks at this point. It's great to get you kind of on the other side of the mic, so to speak. Right. Well, uh, listen, so, so say that at the end of it, before the beginning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a good reason why I sit in the other chair most of the time. Yeah, I know. Find some wood to knock on, right? Um, uh, well, look, thanks so much for, for taking the time to join me today. Um, you know, I'd love to get into a lot of the stuff that you're working on right now, but I've heard you interview so many financial luminaries at this point. I would actually love you to give an overview of your own investing history and how you came to be interested in markets and investing in the, in the first place. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> you know, it was, uh, it was something that I was interested in at a very young age. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew what I wanted to be because I had, a, I had a, a very cool uncle who was, uh, it turned out to be a foreign exchange trader. I didn't know what that was, but I wanted to be like him. So I decided that at, at, literally at the age of eight or nine that I wanted to be a foreign exchange trader. Um, and so, uh, so I, once I found out what that was, I realized it was the last thing I wanted to be. So I, I stayed as far away from foreign exchanges as I possibly could. But um, probably wise. Yeah, but uh, but that was, I mean, that was that was literally the genesis of it. And I just kind of, I was interested in finance. I was interested in that kind of world. My father worked for um, a small American merchant bank, so I, I was kind of involved or immersed in finance to some degree through him. But um, yeah, it just—it was just something that I, I was interested in. I fell into. Luckily, I got offered a job right out of high school, and um, you know, I, I was I had an opportunity to go to university or take this job. And I realised that if I went to university four years later, I'd be trying to get the same job again. So I just thought, you know what? And, and back in the you know the early to mid nineteen eighties, you didn't need a college degree to to get a job. Um, Certainly in the UK, I mean, it was probably different in the US, but uh, university was the exception rather than the norm. So I, I, you know, I turned down the university and, and took the job and, uh, you know, have not spent one day regretting it ever since. And that, that was um, 1980, July 1985, I started work. And uh, I, I had a job in, in the, the settlements department of a, of a Japanese uh, warrant training business for a, for a merchant bank called Robert Fleming and Co. Long since swallowed up by J.P. Morgan, sadly, and they were 
they had a joint venture out in Asia with Jardine Matheson called Jardine Fleming. So I spent a couple of years in London and and really by being in the right place at the right time, managed to get myself a job on the trading desk within a year of, of, of starting. Um, and, you know, was thrown in the deep end, had no idea what I was really doing, to be honest with you, and uh, was learning the hard way every single day. And then Black Monday came along, which took me completely by surprise. Must have been a ton um, of fun. Well, yeah, it wasn't at the time, I can assure you. It was just... It was just um, <laughs> It was shocking. I mean, it really was shocking. Uh, and I've spoken about this often, but but seeing a market lose 20, 22% of its value in one trading session was really just unbelievable to me. You know, that that's the equivalent today of what, uh, where are we down? 8,000 8, on the Dow or something like that in a single day. So yeah, that was, uh, that was, that was something. And I think that had a big Im- influence on, on my uh, mindset throughout the rest of my career, you know, not knowing that that was a real possibility. These were in the days before the Fed put, obviously, when we had free markets. But, uh, but I, so I, I was involved in the Japanese market. I spent a few years in Tokyo, um, uh, right at the height of the, the, the madness on the Nikkei. Um, so I was in Tokyo when the, the, the Nikkei hit thirty nine thousand on on New Year's Eve, nineteen eighty nine. Um, so I had a good, close look at that. Uh, and, and again, was still really figuring everything out. I mean, I was surrounded by a lot of really smart people, and I was by far the youngest guy there. So I just kind of tried to learn as much as I could from everybody around me. And uh, you know, I had some had some great mentors there, and some made some really good friends. I'm still friends with you know, 30 plus years later. Um, and then went back to London for a brief period. Uh, after that, ended up in the US. Um, so I was in the US for the for the bursting of the Nasdaq bubble. So again, I saw that up close in the last few months of its of its rise, uh, and then went back to Asia and spent some time in Hong Kong, spent some time in uh, Singapore, some time in Sydney, um, but always, you know, always in on the trading side for for investment banks, and then uh, ended up working in Singapore for a good friend of mine um, at a hedge fund, Vulpes Investment, for Steve Diggle, uh, and again learned so much more um, in that in those three or four years that I spent with Steve. Uh, it was, it was a, 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 another much steeper learning curve, which, which I, um, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed. And then Real Vision kind of happened. And uh, was, was Steve and I were, were, were going to go and raise a, another fund. And I had this itch that I wanted to scratch. And I realized that I couldn't do both. You, know, you, can't, you can't manage people's money and do something else. It just, it just wasn't uh, the right thing to do. And Steve was fantastic. You know, he said, "Look, if I get it. If you want to go and do that, go. And if it doesn't work out, come back." You know, but um, but he he was incredibly supportive and has been from that day to this. And so I, I just kind of went off on that on that tangent, um, followed that path for the for the next five or five or six years, and um, you know, it, it opened up a whole new world of possibilities to me. A completely different. A career completely different set of skills which none of which I had <laughs> for sure um, and again you know kind of more learning on the fly but uh, I, I, I've enjoyed every minute of it you know I've been very fortunate I've, I've enjoyed every phase of my career um, tremendously I, you know, I knew going into my first job very, very soon after I, I started working in, in at Fleming's in 85 I knew that this was going to be the best job I'd ever had it was just 
it was a completely different time, you know, and uh, and and it was that was that was just a, a real highlight for me. But the the people I've gotten to meet and the the lessons I've learned in these last sort of six or seven years while I've been uh, on the Real Vision journey and beyond have just been um, have been life changing for me. I mean, I, really, I've met some extraordinary people and uh, and made a lot of incredible friends, all of whom have helped me in in more ways than I can ever repay so I'm, I'm hugely grateful to everybody that that has has taught me what they've taught me in the last six or seven years because it's been uh, it's been phenomenal yeah absolutely you mentioned a couple of specific experiences during your time as an investor one you know during Black Monday uh, the market crashed back in 87 uh, and then also um, kind of your experience and the Nikkei um, you know which was one of the largest you know, our most significant bubbles of all time, and also the dot-com bubble. Mm-hmm. How have those experiences colored um, the way you approach markets and investing? Uh, well, look, I mean, I, there are plenty of people out there that would say they've they've made me a perma bear. I don't I don't believe that to be the case. Um, you, you're not a perma bear. I don't think. I, think I don't think so. I don't think so. Not a measured approach. No, I don't that. think so. Yeah. But, you're but, pragmatic. I, but it, thank pragmatic you. bear. <laughs> I, I, I prefer that. But but it, you know, it's funny because it, I think it um, it. it I've always been a believer that that, that that your formative years in the business will will color your career, and obviously we we have no control over the, the environment we inherit. Um, mm. And so, I, so I did. I inherited a crazy bull market, and um, you know the the biggest percentage drop in in markets in our lifetimes. Uh, I had both of those as formative experiences. So for me, that was great because even if I didn't realize it at the time, it helped me understand what speculative excess looks like and it helped me understand the the ultimate downside of that once it goes too far. And I think having both those experiences early in my career was, was, a, it was a huge advantage for me. And I, as I say, I, 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 I hold to the belief that, that avoiding big drawdowns like we saw in 87 um, is the single most important thing to do if you're an investor. You know, you, you can you can make money uh, slowly, but if you lose it quickly, it takes you a long, long time to get it back. And so, I, you know, having having seen those things, having watched, and and been completely caught up in the in the frenzy in '89, but with the memory of '87 still very fresh in my in my memory, um, was great because I never really, I, I never really fully bought into the Japanese. Um, craziness i always had at the back of my mind you know this this can go south in a hurry Mm. so um you know i i would think in bull markets i'm never going to make as much money as the people who just go into it with abandon and just you know lever themselves up and put everything on and just and just ride i'm never going to make the same money as those guys but I, i i hope i'm never gonna suffer the kind of pain that that comes with being called at the top wildly long hopelessly over optimistic and and nowhere near cautious enough because um you know over time i think uh by 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 understanding risk and by constantly being aware of it and trying to mitigate it every day uh for me that's just the way i prefer to work uh there there'll be plenty of people that think that's crazy you know you should just you should be all in and and that's great uh but everybody has to Everybody has to do this in the way that suits their personality, their temperament, their goals. You know, that's why it's such a difficult thing when people ask for 
for you know how do you do this how, how do you do that how do you manage this we're all so different in, in what we in what we want to try and protect against and what we're happy um throwing caution to the wind for and so it's a very difficult thing to do so I, you know I, I i try not to to offer people advice i'm very happy to talk about what i do and i'm very happy to kind of ask people for to to explain their process and explain their framework and how they think about things but i've never really been one to ask people for stock tips you know what should i buy and what should i be long of and what should i short and that kind of stuff because i, ju I just think when you do that you if you don't have the same mindset as the person buying that share that they've told you to buy you're going to be handled in that position completely differently and if you if you if that guy owns a certain stock with a very tight stop because he's you know he's long it but he's cautious and he's nervous about it and you just think well this is great i'm going to buy that thing and watch it go up you can have two people in exactly the same stock they have completely different experiences um and so for me it's always been a question of understanding the hows and the whys and not the what's you know I'm, I'm 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 always asking people how they do things and why they do things and i've never really been so interested in in, in what they do if that makes any sense i just i just think that that information is is really a moment in time you know the what is always temporal whereas the the hows and the whys um have a, just a much longer shelf life and a much broader set of applications absolutely one question that I want to ask you is you've been hosting this podcast for the last nine months or so called The End Game. You're actually hosting mm -hmm. three separate podcasts. You're like the Energizer Bunny of content creation, but um, we'll get to that later. Uh, End Game is, I got to be honest, it's one of my favorite. I, that's one I've just listened to uh, many episodes over and over, and I've got some specific questions about your interview with Paul Singer, which was, I thought, phenomenal. But maybe just starting at a high level here, could you just explain the point of that podcast? What is the central question that you're asking well i think um the way that came about is interesting because uh bill fleckenstein and i've been mates for a number of years and, and our mutual friend mark cahodes basically got the two of us in a headlock and said you two guys need to do a podcast together and um you know it, it's saying no to mark is a difficult thing to do uh, and so we both kind of thought yeah you know that'd be fun and we didn't really know what we didn't have an idea what the podcast was going to be about but we bill and i have talked often and for many years about this idea about the end game and, and what it what it means and i think by that what we meant was the, the kind of end of the year of money printing how does this end how do how does the market or to use bill's uh, excellent phrase how does the bond market take the printing press away from central banks mm. and so that was kind of when we when we sat down and talked about what a podcast would be about that was kind of the thing that we both landed on was like let's let's explore this end game concept and see if other people think differently to us or and so that was kind of what we set out to do and one of our very first guests mike green the very first thing he said was uh you know of course there isn't an end game and and he's absolutely right he's absolutely right and and, and it was at that point that i realized that what we were really trying to figure out was really more of a transition it, it's it's how do we move from this investing environment that we have today to whatever comes next because there will be a different paradigm that we have to invest in because trees don't grow to the sky and money can't be free forever and interest rates can't stay low forever and debt can't build up indefinitely right there, there, there will be a reckoning and at that point in time everything will necessarily have to change you know we'll go from low rates to high rates we'll go from 
massive debt to people not wanting any debt. We've seen this many, many times throughout history. So it became really a question of, okay, what, what are the different threads to this, the, the current environment? What, 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 is, what is the construct we're all investing in? And, and how do we transition from that to something else? Who knows what that may be? We, we, we don't know. What are, the, what are the signs? What should we be looking for? What are the clues that that, that change is at hand? Um, and so that's kind of where we've really taken this thing is, is talking to people about their views on on what happens next and 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 some of them are macro focused and some of them are, are sector focused um but you know every single one of them has has been fantastic I mean, we've been incredibly fortunate bill and i to have just the most amazing guests all of whom have been in rare form when, when we've spoken to them and, and given the two of us uh to say nothing of the audience lots to think about and um you know the the the, the series has really kind of taken on a life of its own which is which is fabulous um mm. but uh look we, without these guys being willing to come on and share their their experiences and share their wisdom and share their thoughts it would just be bill and i talking to each other and nobody wants to listen to that even, even bill and i probably yeah you know i listened to that uh episode with mike green a couple times actually yeah had a big brain took a little while to digest everything that he was saying um, and it reminded me of this quote. I don't know if you're a fan of Watchmen. Uh, uh, do you know what? No, I, 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 I tried to watch it when, it, when the, um, they did the HBO thing, and I just I couldn't oh, get into man. it. I thought it was so good. I, I didn't even like the original movie that I watched. I don't like Zack Snyder. I think he's single-handedly destroyed the DC entire. <laughs> that's a whole different discussion for a different day. But I thought that was great. But there's this really good line at the end of the original Watchmen, which is this guy, Ad spoiler alert, uh, this guy Adrian does this horrible genocidal type thing and it's to save, it's to unite the different peoples of the world and get them all behind this thing, but he ends up killing about three million people. And he <laughs> asks this guy at the end of the day, hey, was it all worth it? Um, how does it all end? And, uh, and this god, Dr. Manhattan, says nothing ever ends. Yeah. And I thought that was just such a great quote and I listening to mike green say that i was like man i'm outing myself as a complete nerd here uh but that's <laughs> that's what it reminded me of um you know listening to all of the episodes that you've put together my framework that i think you're laying out is it seems like we're kind of between a skill and a charybdis type situation where on the one side you have asset bubbles and inflation and on the other side you risk huge deflation, right? And, and massive uh, drops in the stock market, which would be really bad, um, obviously for the US, but also global economies. Is that, I mean, how, how do you think about uh, kind of the transition or the risks that uh, investors are facing today? Well, look, I think at any point in time, there is always risk, uh, always. And, and sometimes the, the risks are heightened and sometimes they come out of the clear blue sky and you just don't see them don't see them coming mm. um but yeah look, I, th I think right now that deflation inflation debate which has been kind of raging for some time now but it's not really been a debate because mm. it's been about a deflationary problem and an inflationary solution to it which they've been singularly unable to to create um so while it's been a debate it really hasn't it's not been which one are we going to get it's been how do we kill one with the other now I think um, I think things have changed. I think we are now, and this is this is my big takeaway from 
the end game series so far is that that this inflation deflation debate is a decision that everybody has to think through very very seriously because it's it's it, it if we if we do move from deflation to inflation then everything changes uh and and so portfolios that have performed very well won't mm. and portfolios that have sucked will start to outperform again and so you you, you may need to shift your entire asset allocation based on the environment um and because inflation's essentially been absent for what 40 years now people make the assumption that it's not something we're ever going to have to deal with again which is totally understandable they have no experience of it you know i was i was what 12 13 years old when when inflation peaked in 1980 so i i don't have any memory of inflation i i vaguely remember news headlines in in the papers i i, I was familiar with the word i didn't really know what it meant but, but um you know i i having lived through the 70s in the uk even as a kid I, you know i remember the riots i remember the strikes i remember you know all that stuff um it's not it, they're memories that i don't i didn't have an understanding of what they all meant but i i i, I remember the, the general environment really quite well and and that's not to say that that's where we're heading back to but the the same forces that that caused that and created that environment are likely to be present again at some point in in what's likely to be the not too distant future um so with that kind of understood i i then comes down to from, from the investment perspective to your time frame purely and simply are, are you a trader are you trying to trade the, the the turn in the tides from deflation to inflation if that's the case then you've probably got deflation as your as your main threat for the you know not for the for the for the seeable future um if you're trying to invest for the next five years then it's probably still too early to start adjusting your portfolio to 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 deal with inflation although I'm sure it'll behoove you to to start thinking through what you need to do once the time comes when you think it's something you need to to, to take action against. If, on the other hand, you're trying to invest for 10, 15, 20 years, a lifetime, then I don't think it's at all too soon to start readjusting your portfolio to to be more inflation resistant. Because uh, whilst I believe we, we could still have another deflationary gut punch headed our way um i suspect that that will very quickly give way to inflation and we may not get that deflationary gut punch and look there, there are there are so many smart people on both sides of this debate um you know a lot of whom we've talked to in the podcast uh we had Lacey hunt and russell napier back to back on the end game steph pomboy and i talked to rosen dave rosenberg rosie on uh, the super terrific happy hour each of them making wildly different cases, each of them ridiculously smart in their own way, and all of them offering very useful, very credible and very valuable arguments. There is no right answer, but taking those inputs, you know, Rosie makes a very, very strong case as to why we don't have to worry about inflation. And then you listen to Russell Napier, who has been a staunch deflationist for 20 years, explain why he believes that you know four or five percent inflation is in is imminent 
uh, and he makes again a very credible case. You know, Lacey Hunt remains a deflationist, but but all of these guys, the one thing they have in common is none of them are dumb, and they all think about this stuff a great deal, and and that none of them are shooting from the hip. So what it tells you is, if you have guys with that level of intellect that disagree so strongly, that tells you that we are at a juncture where the the waters are getting very very choppy. And 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 it, it tells me that I need to start thinking about what the future might hold and and preparing for that if I believe it's the right thing to do. Um, and 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 that's what I have started to do. I I think for me with a ten year view, I, I'm not prepared to back deflation for another ten years. And so I'm I'm very happy to start reconstructing my own portfolio to to be more uh resistant to inflation than uh, than deflation if we're headed towards an inflationary environment do you see that do you see financial oppression and what i mean by financial oppression is sustained negative real yields do you see that happening in an inflationary environment yeah i can see that look you, you have to remember that the the position back in back in 1980 when we had this wild inflation the the Federal Reserve with Paul Volcker could put interest rates up close to twenty percent. Right, they had the ability to do that to choke off inflation, and and God bless Volcker, he did it. He he had no bones about it. He did it. He he at the time was demonized, later to be lionized, quite rightly, and he did it. But if you think about where we stand today, there is absolutely no way in the world that central banks can do that with interest rates because the entire financial system, given the amount of debt that has built up, would utterly implode. Never mind 20% rates, try 5% rates. You know, the whole thing is unsustainable at those levels. So uh, whilst the, the, the problems are going to be of a very similar nature, the solutions to them are, are going to have to be markedly different because uh, they just don't have the one tool that they used to break the back of it back in 1980s, and they don't have it at their disposal anymore. So financial repression is an absolute given for me. There will be uh, currency controls, capital controls. There will be, uh, they will try pegging the yield curve. They will do all kinds of dramatic and drastic things to try and stop inflation getting out of control to try and stop more important inflation getting out of control bond yields getting out of control because um you know from where we are it takes a very very small move in the bond market to cause an awful lot of damage for people and when you've got you know one in five s&p companies uh unable to finance their operations out of cash flow and and necessarily being forced to have to roll over debt to maintain solvency that's a world of hurt waiting to happen. So, you know, uh, the, 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 the response to these natural forces is what worries me the most because I think it will be um, the kind of things that you kind of imagine in your worst nightmare and think, no, there's no way they'd do that. I mean, how would they possibly get away with it? And I was talking to someone the other day and, and where we were talking about the, 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 it being a, a year since the pandemic started. And, um, you know, I said to him, look, if I'd have told you really how easy it would be to get several billion people to lock themselves inside their homes and do exactly as they're told, 
you'd have told me there's no way I can do that to all those people. And that's, you know, that's, I'm, I'm not being a conspiracy theorist. I'm just saying they're, they're, it's a lot easier than you think for governments to mandate things for people to do and people just do them. Uh, so they're going to be forced to take some dramatic measures. Uh, they are going to be confiscatory in nature, I suspect. They will try and keep the wheels on this thing, but there are going to be some very, very powerful natural forces desperately trying to pull this thing apart. And, and at that point, it becomes it becomes a contest between the forces of nature and the, the forces of elected and unelected officials of all kinds. And, and you know, place your bets where you want, but ultimately, I just don't see the forces of nature succumbing to Jay Powell, Christine Lagarde, and uh, you know a few politicians around the world. So maybe this is a good point to transition into your perspective on gold, which I've heard you talk about. And there's one interview you did a while ago where you described the unique role that gold plays kind of at the heart of the financial system. And I know you've been a proponent of gold for a long period of time. So maybe just talk about how you think about that asset and the role that it would play in an environment of financial oppression. Yeah, I, you know, I, there was a time in my life where I didn't care about gold. I didn't, you know, I, I was aware of the gold price uh, if it moved. I didn't check it every day. I, you know, I, 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 I was aware of its role and its importance, but it didn't really, there was no need to own it, I didn't feel. Um, and that for me changed around uh, 2000 uh, when the, the, the Fed did what they did to, to try and combat the bursting of the dot-com bubble. And you know, at that point, I started reading a lot more um, history. I was always a history guy anyway, but I started reading a lot more history at that time and monetary history and trying to understand the role that gold had played throughout you know, thousands of years of, of history. And um, you know, it became clear to me that, that the only way forward for governments was really going to be currency debasement in the form of artificially low interest rates. Um, you know, the idea of printing money was was a vague one at that time. You know, we didn't really hadn't foreseen QE, but if you if you'd read history, you understood where we were headed. And so at that point, you know, I started to I started to feel like I needed to own gold. It wasn't a trade. It wasn't. It was something I felt I needed to do to counteract the steps that were going to be taken by uh, the fiscal and monetary authorities and you know at the time gold was trading in i think a low 300 dollar range and it just seemed wildly too low to me and, and it was clear that that was because it just was unloved and i hadn't needed to own it or look at it for many years and so no one else had either so that you know i started buying gold i think i paid 333 dollars for my first um ounce of gold and i, and I remember handing over physical currency I wanted to pay for it in cash and, and there was something about you know handing over some very familiar paper and being handed this coin that when you when you when you dropped it in your hand it 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 was meaningful it's it's a strange thing and if you haven't experienced it you won't know but but to hand over money and to be given wealth is a very interesting feeling because because of the, the the weight of gold, the density of it, it feels like it's worth something. And whether paper fiat currency is just so familiar that you just don't think about it as you hand it over, it really felt to me like a like an unfair exchange. I felt like I was I was screwing the guy out of something by giving him this paper and being given this this lump of metal. 
and and that so that was that was a very interesting sensation for me uh, and you know from there uh i've accumulated gold over the years and and continue to do so but i but it's never when you when you ask about how i think about it and i and i've talked about this a lot so if i'm if i'm boring people i apologize but you asked the question i'm just answering it um i i the last thing i care about is the price i i just it, people think i'm joking when i say i don't care about the price i don't care about the price it's not about that to me i i know that no matter where the gold price is trading over time relative to other assets it's going to preserve my purchasing power and that's really all i care about i, I just don't want my money being worth less because of inflation because of governments because of all the things that they are absolutely required to do to keep the system together you know when a government says that we are going to target two percent inflation they are telling you we are going we our, our aim is to reduce your purchasing power by two percent a year uh, and that mm -hmm. compounds very very quickly so i don't think about the price i look at gold as a, as a liquidity reserve i look at it as a as um a, as a monetary asset and and in terms of you know when people talk about the price i never think about the price level where I would sell my gold, I think about a point in time where I might decide that the gold I have in that safety deposit box, I would prefer to own that piece of land with it, or I'd prefer to own a property or I'd prefer to own something else than the gold. And at that point, I will exchange the gold for that other asset, whatever it may be. It's not, it's not a $3,000 gold price. It's not a $5,000 gold price. It's, you know, I, I have gold here in this safety deposit box that I can exchange for that given where the relative price of the two are. Um, there, there, there may well be a time when, and I hope the time comes, when I feel again that I don't need to own any gold. But that comes from a, a system that's been purged of debt. It comes from a system where governments are not on this reckless hell-bent mission to just debase the currency out of necessity. Um, and so I... I, I when, when people get caught up in gold isn't doing what gold's supposed to do with all these stimulus checks going, I, I, it, it doesn't phase me in the slightest. I, I, I look at what equity markets are doing and people will say, well, you know, you, you're sitting there in gold and you, 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 you could have been participating in this crazy equity rally. And the simple truth is, since I started buying gold uh, close to 20 years ago, with very little stress, because I'm not focusing on the price, I've outperformed the S&P 500 over that time handily. So I didn't have to suffer through the 08 drawdown and, and see these shares be illiquid. I, I could have sold my gold at any point during that that meltdown. It was, there, was, there was no impediment to selling your gold at the market price uh, during the 08 meltdown. And even though gold fell, uh, my purchasing power increased significantly because gold you know, fell 100, 150 bucks, which was what, 10, 15%, I think, at, at its maximum, the equity market fell 60%. And so people say, well, you know, gold fell as well. Yeah, it did. But I could have still bought three times the units of the S&P with my gold that I could have done beforehand, even though the gold price had fallen. And that's really the important thing to understand is it's not about the gold price. It's about what that what you can exchange that gold for. So you know, there will come a time, I'm sure, where I will happily exchange all my gold and, and I may exchange it for uh, the S&P 500. If that thing is once again, like it was in the early 80s, trading at six times earnings and yielding 6% dividends, I, I would happily trade all my gold for an equity market that I could 
just buy and put away for 20 years and forget about. But we're nowhere near that yet. And, and we've got a long way to go before we get there. And the road from here to there is strewn with all kinds of you know, bear traps and quicksand and all kinds of things. So I'm just very happy sitting in gold. And I'm very happy to let other people get rich by buying Bitcoin and, and suffering that kind of volatility. I, I, I mean, great. I'm very happy, everybody. For me, for, for, for the level of risk tolerance that I want to put up at, at 54 years old, it's, it's wholly different. And I'm very, very comfortable holding gold. Well, you mentioned uh, what you and Bill Fleckenstein call the B word. So I actually want to get into that a little bit. First of all, every time in uh, the end game, when you said the Bitcoiners have stopped listening, I have kept listening. So I do want to collect some sort of trophy or, or something okay. for that. I always okay. keep listening through that. Um, I'll wait for that to come in the mail. Um, but, you know, I listened you know, in preparation for this to a talk that you had with uh, Keith McCullough over at Hedgeye. And you're talking about this kind of binary attitude that is manifesting across the political spectrum, across the financial spectrum, and how Bitcoin epitomizes these binary polemical kind of view that seems to be very pervasive in the US today. And I'll be the first to say I completely agree with you. And I think a lot of what you see on Twitter and a lot of the public discourse is straight up counterproductive, I would say. Um, but I think even just listening to how you described gold, you know, saying things like, you know, I, I don't care about the price and it's about protecting my purchasing power. You know, people say that kind of stuff about Bitcoin as well. And sometimes that gets interpreted as that's a, you know, that's a extreme sort of thing to say. And I'm going to give you my second nerdy, I'm going to out myself as a nerd for the second time on this podcast. But uh, there's there's uh, an episode of South Park. I don't know if you've ever watched that show. I have. I, I used rough. to watch it religiously. I haven't watched it for a long Great time. Satire. I used to watch it. Great yeah. satire. Well, real life has become, you know, it's hard to satirize what's going on right now. Um, but there was a great episode. Character Cartman, uh, he gets frozen in time. He wakes up, you know, a thousand years later. In, in, in the beginning of the episode, he's talking about these religious wars and how it's kind of silly where people fight over different religion wakes up a thousand years later and people are still fighting these religious wars. And, you know, you find out halfway through the episode that everyone's an atheist in the future. And what they're actually fighting about is the name of the atheist league, you know, the United right. Atheist Alliance. Right. And, you know, when I listen to people who support gold or find value um, in the role that it plays in the financial system. And when I listen to what people who are supporters of Bitcoin talk about, it's like 90% of the way they're agreed. Right. I yeah. Mean, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Problem. Everyone yeah. agrees on. It's just at the end. You know, what's the right way to express that view where people disagree? I guess. Um, but I'm, I'm totally right there with you in that. I just think that it's really hard to have a non-emotional conversation. Um, well, you know, the, the sad the, look, the sad truth of it is that there's there's a there's a coda to that statement where it's 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 hard to have a, a sensible conversation in public, right? Mm -hmm. That's the problem, because in private, I've had some wonderful conversations with people about Bitcoin, and, and, and I've learned an enormous amount about it. And, and you know, as you said, I, I, I absolutely understand the case for Bitcoin. I completely understand it. It's not, to, and I think anyone who is an advocate of gold completely understands it. Now, there will be some, uh, some, some gold proponents who dislike the limelight that Bitcoin is taking from them. 
who dislike intensely the the way Bitcoin is performing because they feel like gold should be performing that way and they're jealous or whatever. I, I get it. This is all human emotion. But the but the simple truth is that um, the, as you say, the two let's call them ideologies for want of a less uh, inflammatory word are are incredibly closely aligned. The difference, I think, is that no matter what anybody says, Bitcoin, because of its trajectory, has become about the price. And even the you know the staunchest, uh, most hardcore Bitcoin guys who are real thought leaders in the space. You find them on Twitter marking off 53,000, 54,000, 55,000, right? Uh, and that, that, doesn't, that doesn't fit that, that, that I think the narrative you're trying to, you're trying to convey. If, you're, if, if you genuinely believe in Bitcoin as the future and you believe in it to do all the things you believe it's going to do, whether it's 53,000 or 54,000 makes absolutely no difference whatsoever. It doesn't make any difference, particularly if you're a hodler. You're never going to sell it anyway. So why does 54,000? Well, I'll tell you why 54,000 matters and 55,000, because that's a way to pull more people into this thing, right? It's the same with gold. When it goes through 2,000 and all the gold guys come out and start saying 2,000, here we go, 2,500 next and 3,000 next. That's how you're going to pull more people in who aren't necessarily ideologues in terms of Bitcoin or gold. But they are susceptible to that base human emotion of greed. And you want more people in your tribe. You want more people buying gold. You want more people buying Bitcoin. I, I, I get it. But, but I, think, um, I think when you try and have these conversations in public, everybody gets very defensive and everybody feels like they're being attacked. And the best form of defense is attack. And so everybody puffs their chest out on Twitter and you know, ad hominem attacks start flying out and, you know, and it, it's, it's such a shame because, you know, as you say, the two camps are very, very close in ideology. They're just, they just have their own horse in the race and they, and they don't want to back the other guy's horse, which is fine. Um, but but that, that problem with having a, a sensible, reasoned, balanced discussion about Bitcoin, the pros and cons, and I was very fortunate, thanks to thanks to Mike Green and and uh, Nick Carter, I Green. was able to have a, a yeah have a have a sensible debate about Bitcoin that was polite and respectful, and I thought both guys accredited themselves really really well. Agreed. Um, and, and and it was refreshing to be able to listen to that and not get into the name calling and all that because it's just pointless, right? But but in public, people. You know, if they get challenged, they want to they, they want to respond to that challenge, and and, and it, so things escalate very very quickly. And and that's that's not just a Bitcoin gold thing. That's a Republican Democrat thing. That's a Boomer Millennial thing. That's a one percent ninety nine percent thing. It's just it's just this this divisiveness that's all around us right now. And, and again, I've spoken about this a lot lately. But the, this the divide. Um, you know, people think of it on a horizontal scale. They think it's this is a left and right uh, problem. And if we and if we divide people left and right, we put a line down the middle. There's where the two sides are drawn. But the reality of it is, this is a vertical uh, struggle. Whichever way you look at it, right? If you if you cut left and right, uh, Republican Democrat, on each side you've got rich and poor, you've got old and young, you've got boomers, millennials, you've got these vertical struggles. 
And that's where the real conflict is here. That's where the problems lie because of the last 10, 12 years of, of, of um, monetary policy. No matter what Jay Powell and, and, and his kind of band of merry men and women say about how we don't feel that we've created any wealth inequality, it's, it's utter bullshit. Everybody looking at this can see exactly what you've done. Um, that it, it, it's, a, it's a very short series of dots to join to prove that your monetary policy has led to stark wage disparity, to stark wealth disparity. The rich have gotten wholly richer. The poor have gotten far worse off. Um, and, and for what? To try and keep the system together. Right, all this has been done to keep the system together. With the, the the idea being that by keeping the system together, it's better for everybody. Well, it's not. You know, if if the system burned to the ground in '08, if all the banks had gone, you know, we keep hearing about, oh my God, you have you have no idea what would have happened if we hadn't stepped in and done what we'd done. We don't, but there, and there's never a counterfactual. But can you tell me that after a, an incredibly tough period for everybody, that the system wouldn't have been reset in a much fairer way? Because I would argue that's absolutely what would happen. I would have think that a lot of very, very wealthy people would have gotten a lot less wealthy in a very short period of time. And that, that wealth, uh, paper-based though it was, would have just gone away. And yes, it would have been uh, an incredibly tough adjustment period, but look at COVID. Right, the world came together and came up with a solution to a problem it was facing, the likes of which it hadn't faced in a hundred years. Now you can you can believe in the virus or not believe in the virus; it doesn't matter. Um, the world was faced with a problem. The world came together, took drastic measures, and yes, there was the entire global economy came to a halt, and unemployment shot through the roof in just about every country on earth. But guess what? Here we are a year later, and we've gotten through that. Are you telling me that's worse than had they allowed Goldman Sachs to go under, or they'd allowed Merrill Lynch to go under? Are you telling me this, this is worse? I, we don't. We'll never know. But I think what we can safely assume is that the people who made those decisions were absolutely the people who stood to benefit from the actions that were taken the most, and they did. So, you know, th this, 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 this vertical conflict that we are experiencing right now, so much of it stems from that. And I, I, I don't think anybody that pays attention doesn't understand that. And that includes every single employee at the Federal Reserve. But, of course, there's absolutely no way they can come out and say, yeah, well, you know, what we've done has, has exacerbated the wealth divide. There's no way they could admit to that. Um, and so they won't, and they'll keep doing what they're doing. They'll keep trying to, quote, unquote, keep the system together um, at the expense of the very people that they're purporting to try and save. It's, um, you know, it's egregious. So one, you know, it seems sometimes like the cleanest framework to describe a lot of what we have talked about during this podcast, but a lot of what you just kind of alluded to is this fourth turning framework around the abandoning of different institutions. And you see it kind of across financial institutions. Uh, there's a mistrust in banks. There's a mistrust in political institutions like governments. And there's a, there's a mistrust in, in the media, right? You kind of see it across this broad swath of different institutions. And 
in some sense, that's, that's quite worrying. Do you agree with that framework? Um, or what, what's your thought on, on that kind of this whole fourth turning transition of institutions? Well, again, you know, I, I, I absolutely subscribe to that theory. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking with my buddy Neil Howe about this. And it's, it's a book that if anyone listening to this hasn't read it, they ought to read it. It's a, it's a fantastic book. And, and it, it really helps you understand so many different dynamics, I think. But um, yeah, for me, the important thing to understand is, is that the, the fourth turning is just that. It's a turning. And it leads to a first turning. And, and this is a cycle that's repeated throughout history. And I think whenever you, you're in a, in a fourth turning, that's the dark part of the cycle, right? And so it's natural to be afraid in the dark. It's natural to be concerned about the outcomes. But, but mankind has survived plenty of fourth turnings in the past and will survive this one. It's, just, it's uncomfortable when, particularly at an institutional level, when, when there is an abandoning of institutions because institutions in good times make us feel safe um so when they start to crumble and they start to be kind of shown up to to either no longer be fit for purpose or never were in the first place it's uncomfortable and we're all shaken to our foundations by it um and it leads to turmoil and it leads to conflict leads to all the things we're seeing but look we're seeing those now you know the, the fourth turning when you read about these previous fourth turnings just spend some time thinking about well, what were the people in those fourth turnings? How were they feeling at the time? Now, many of them have been characterized by war. So that's a wholly different thing. But from a social strife point of view, do you think they felt any different to the way we do now? I'm sure they didn't. It's, it's, it's a moment in time that feels very scary, that feels uncomfortable, where things seem out of control. Um, but we will look back on this fourth turning in in times to come and see it as a as a period in time it's not a constant as it is to us every day when we wake up at the moment you know every day we live this right now but at some point that will fade the system will reset as it as it always has done as it always has to do um and and something will be born out of that you know the the big problem is is what leads to that rebirth is it conflict and if so what kind of conflict are we talking? Are we talking a World War II or a Civil War type conflict? Which again, it feels, you know, for the first time in my lifetime, you, you know, you kind of look at America and feel like if someone flashed me forward a hundred years in the future and showed me a news clipping of 2025 and there was a civil war in the U.S., I wouldn't go, "Oh my God!" I'd go, "Yeah, you kind of felt that was coming," you know. And and that's that, that's this is the first time it's felt like that in my lifetime. And of course, it always feels worse in the moment because you, you, you're scared of the unknown. But I've never had those kind of thoughts before in my lifetime. So I, I think I think we're 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 in a fourth turning, and so being in the middle of it, you can't see the other side, and it feels like a, a hugely oppressive period of time that that will go on for who knows how long. But but mankind will survive and mankind will will get through that and, and find a new way and a new system under under which to operate and we'll thrive again that's what we do but it's just unfortunate that we have to live through this period you know the boomer generation god bless them you know that they they missed world war Two. uh you know certainly consciously a lot of them were, were young kids there um they've lived through this phenomenal uh period of prosperity and 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 wealth generation 
and uh, you know a lot of them are going to are going to exit stage left before we get to the meat of this. So you know what a great time to be alive. Um, you just had to kind of avoid Vietnam, and and which was really only a problem for Americans and a few Canadians and a couple of Aussies, and uh, and you were golden. But the you know my kids' generation and my grandkids' generations are probably going to have to live through some real turmoil and some real struggle. But that's what the greatest generation did, right? They went through the depression, they went through World War Two. So it, it's it's kind of the generational lottery. Uh, some people win it, some people don't. But but right now we're at a point where you've got this this um, this transfer of power, which is probably overdue you know the boomers never handed power to gen x you know my generation have never really had the reins of power because the boomers had it and for obvious reasons they're not going to relinquish it until they have to whether that's by time running out finally or it being snatched from them by another generation and that feels like where we are now that the, the millennials and gen z uh generations are are are, are keen to have that power to, to redistribute things, to make things fairer for themselves, as as is perfectly understandable. So what does that transition of power look like? Is it is it peaceful over time at the ballot box, um, which w- would obviously be the most preferable way for it to happen? Or is it is it Antifa? Is it, you know, QAnon? Is it all these kind of crazy factions that stir up some kind of rebellion that leads to, to to a far more violent transfer of power. We we don't know. Um, I, I my faith would be that that it would be the former, and we will. I suspect in the next midterms we'll start to see a lot more younger uh, congressmen and women senators getting elected to office, and that to me is the sign that I'm looking for that we will start to see a lot of these policies that start to favour the young and penalize the old and the wealthy, which is, you know, I guess that's that's the circle of life, you know, Hakuna Matata and all that. Um, that's that's the way it should go, right? I mean, it's the way it should go. But when you look at just how wealthy the, 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 the Jeff Bezos's and the Elon Musk of the world have become in the last year, you realize that something is absolutely not right. When the world is struggling the way it's struggling, and these guys are making hundreds of billions of dollars just in their the valuation of their stock, something is broken, and it needs to be fixed. Yeah, I think anyone with a view towards history could look at that disparity and predict there's not going to be a good outcome here, right? Like if you, if you look back at times of historical unrest and strife, it is virtually almost always preceded by historic gaps in income yep. inequality. Um, it's just a tale as old as time. And for me, you know, when I'm looking at, there are a lot of conflicts that are manifesting themselves in seemingly different ways, but I think it's all, you can trace it all back to the same issue, which is simple inequality. And there's only so long that that can go on as the divide gets bigger and bigger at a certain point, people just aren't going to put up with it. I feel like everything traces back to that one statistic and, I do think there will be, you know, Ray Dalio talks about this a lot, some sort of redistribution, whether that be from yeah. the boomers to a younger generation or, you know, across different racial or gender lines, whatever it is, it feels like we are headed towards a redistribution of wealth in some way. I, I absolutely agree. And, and, you know, the interesting thing is because of the debt levels in the world, 
the, the people who you would think at face value fall into the category of wealthy are not wealthy. Now, there are a lot of people living in $5 million homes who have $4 million mortgages, right? Because, the, because money's so cheap to borrow. Um, and if, if, as I suspect will be the case, there are kind of one-off wealth taxes on valuable houses, something that, that is simple to do because no one can move their property, but also plays very well politically, you, know, you start to say, well, you know, if you've got a $5 million home, you can afford to pay a 200 grand tax, and so that's what we're going to make you do. Um, and politically, that plays great. Yeah, stick it to those guys. If you've got a $5 million home, you can pay 200 grand into the kitty. Of course you can. You know, if you've got a $5 million home with a $4 million mortgage on it, you cannot afford to pay 200 grand. You just can't. And so the, 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 the line of wealth has been blurred dramatically by debt. People who look wealthy and seem wealthy are not wealthy. They've borrowed an awful lot of money. Um, the only way you can really redistribute this is to take it from people who physically have that wealth. And that is the Jeff Bezos, and it is the Elon Musk, and it is the Bill Gates. It's all these guys. It's all the people in private equity who've, who've cashed out and made hundreds of millions of dollars. That's real wealth, right? And it's tangible wealth, and it's wealth that, that, that they can be <clears throat> forced to give up and, and still you know, put a roof over their family's heads and put their kids through private school. But of course, they also have maximum lobbying power. They also have maximum influence. So it's, it's one way or another, this is going to be a conflict um, because the people that have do not want to give up and the people that have not want. And that's mm. just the way it's going to be. Uh, I, I, you can place your bets on how you think it's going to go. It, it's not going to be a simple process of, hey, you guys have got a lot of money. Can we have it? Yeah, sure. You know, we've got too much money. Here, have it. That's the one thing I guarantee you is not going to happen. Everything else is a conflict of some sort to be to be figured out. Yeah. I've got one more question for you, and then, you know, I've impinged on your time long enough here. But um, you, you alluded to something back during the last fourth turning, right? So during the 30s in the United States, um, that there was a there was a big confiscation of gold, right? Um, I had to look this up because this number shocked me. Do you know how long it was illegal for U.S. citizens to own gold? Oh, yeah, like 40-odd like, uh, years, right? 40 years? Yeah, yeah. That blew my mind. And it blew my mind how the government did it, which was they basically they made every owner a forced seller at a price of $20 an ounce, yep. and then they immediately repriced it yep. to 35 So, I mean, that to me was unbelievable. I guess it shows you the kind of political will that must have been generated post Great Depression. Um, but you know, to your point earlier, if you had asked the question, how easy would it be to get 7 billion people to lock themselves up? Well, in normal times, that would be impossible. But after periods of dislocation, yep. that enables politicians to summer, su summon some amount of political will to do incredible things. And tying it all back to, I think, you know, when I think about Bitcoin as well, I think one of the biggest uh, worries that I have about it is government interference. And, you know, on that great debate that you hosted with Nick and Mike, um, you brought that question up. And I think Nick's response was something to the effect of I would become a dissident if it was made illegal. Yep. And yep. I, I was kind of thinking, mm, I would not. I would not become a dissident because I love uh, living in the United States, actually. And 
so I guess that's something that I worry about. Is that something that you think could potentially happen again with gold? I understand it was a very different situation back then. And yeah. the, we were on the gold standard and that was interfering with the government's ability to finance itself and debase the fiat currency. Bit of a different situation than we have today. But do you ever worry about these kind of escape outlets, assets that are outside of the financial system like gold or Bitcoin? Do you worry about them getting potentially banned? Yeah, look, I, I think... I think um we are at a point where uh, you have to now expect extreme outcomes, right? Because the yeah. situation is extreme. And so, yeah, as 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 a holder of gold, and to your point, who who understands what happened with Executive Order sixty one hundred two and how that whole thing went down, um, I understand the same way that eighty seven taught me that the markets can lose twenty two percent in a day. 6102 taught me that your gold can be confiscated, right? So I realized that anyone that says, oh, that will never happen, well, it has, and it possibly will again. So you have to think about it, which is why when the Bitcoin guys say, well, they can't stop it, they'll never, they'll never ban Bitcoin. It's, never say never, never say never, because when we get into extreme outcome territory, which is where we are now, things will get extreme. So with gold... Um, you know, there, there are the way I think that through is is would I hold my gold in the United States? Never, I, I just wouldn't do that. I would be much happier holding it in a country in Asia, for example, where the the, the affinity for gold and the cultural affinity for gold just runs that much deeper. Mm. And to to outlaw the ownership of gold in India, for example, is far less feasible than it is to do it in the United States. United States, it's not a widely held asset. In India, most families keep their savings in gold. So to outlaw gold would be a very difficult political move to make. And also, if you're going to do that, people have to have a way to hold their savings. So you will see things happen before it gets outlawed in India, whether it's that you know, we're going to open mandatory bank accounts for everybody in India and you're all going to have a bank account whatever it may be, they will have to put something in place before they can outlaw gold in India. Um, so you'll, you, you'll be able to see those moves coming. Um, trying to outlaw gold, the ownership of gold in you know, Vietnam or, or even Singapore, Thailand, places like that, much harder thing to do because the, the man in the street has a gold coin, has his savings in gold, his family. It may not be much money, but that's how they keep their savings. So there are potential escape routes for that in terms of holding your gold overseas. There's no guarantee that you'll be safe, um, but it will be overseas. And you will ultimately have a tangible good that should you wish to flout any rules that get put in place, if you want to take your gold out and store it under your bed and use it to barter with, you will you will have that option, right? Be, being... Being a dissident as far as owning gold is 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 different to being a Bitcoin dissident, right? Mm. Because with Bitcoin, um, if you if you control the on and off ramps and you put the right sort of border guards in place, you make it very very difficult to to transact in in cryptocurrencies. And also, to your point, you know, when you just said I wouldn't become a dissident, ninety. 7.8% of the people in the world would think exactly the same as you do. There's a law, I'm not going to break it. And so if you're told that unless you 
hand over your Bitcoin for a pre-agreed price, you're breaking the law. Most people will do that exactly. And they'll be they'll be pissed and they'll be upset that their utopian dream has been snatched away from them. And yes, they'll bitch and moan, but the choice between bitching and moaning and becoming a criminal is an easy choice for them to make. There will be other people who will refuse to do that. And what happens with them, I don't know. But they end up in the Caymans. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But um, but you know, the, 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 the that that's one of my one of my big questions about Bitcoin is that the, the the questions that I don't have answered to my satisfaction are around that are around, and, and not even so much outlawing the ownership of Bitcoin, but a lot of the things we've talked about in terms of a reset of the system, in terms of the fourth turning, in terms of uh, trying to work out how to keep the wheels on the system necessarily involve uh, much tighter control of the currency by the government, right? Did we, we hear this talk about digital currencies. They're absolutely in our future. There's no, no doubt about that. And so for, you know, for me, the big question about Bitcoin is, is why would the government allow any kind of competing currency? Right? They never have in history. Um, whoever has the has the power to mint the currency holds all the power right if you are trying to set up a system which is designed to make sure that you have control of every aspect of people's spendings you can you can dock money from bank accounts to citizens who don't toe the line you can give uh, stimulus directly to certain bank accounts to make sure the right people get it why are you ever going to allow for a competing currency it's just I won't say it's not going to happen. It's never been allowed to happen before. And so I think that's a very real question. And it's one that I haven't had an answer to other than, oh, no, no, they won't do that. And and that, look, for me, that that's good enough for plenty of people. It's just not good enough for me. And that's that may be my bad, but I just don't see how how it's an option to allow Bitcoin to thrive in a world where you're trying to crack down on, on how people um, uh, use the 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 assets they have yeah i think the not that i have an answer to that question but i think the way that i look at this is one um maxim that has stuck with me that i think is quite interesting is you know when you think about kind of value versus growth investing and there's the kind of technologists on the one hand and the value investors on the other is that the technologists tend to generally be directionally right but they vastly underestimate the amount of frictions that it takes to get yeah. to that end yeah. state. And I think that's the framework that I think about with Bitcoin um, in that I just look at the design, how eloquent it is, how much it works. I personally think it's a big step forward in terms of governance. And um, I think it's more of a governance thing, really, even than a technology right. thing. Um, and for me, when I look at that, I just think this feels obvious and right. And I think that there may be huge frictions in terms of adopting it long term, because I totally agree with you. I think that the biggest impediment to potential adoption is how are governments going to react to this? And I see CBDCs as the anti uh, Bitcoin because yeah. they are essentially a way for um, central banks to disintermediate commercial banks, which is where money creation, broad money creation actually happens. Right? And there's a lot of pretty dystopian um, you know, futures that you could imagine with the the level of granularity of control that they would have yeah. over the money supply if that actually became the case. So I guess that I think, you know, if I'm thinking 100 years into the future, right, this feels like the general direction that money 
and technology is going, but I think the frictions from here to there are generally really underexplored and not certainly by people within the Bitcoin community. It's not given the level of scrutiny that it probably deserves. Um, yeah, I, I, no, I, just, I just think it, right now there's never been uh, there's never been a worse time to be certain about anything, and yeah. and there is so much certainty in in the Bitcoin community that for me that's a red flag because I, I there there have been periods in in my lifetime my investing career where you could have a high degree of certainty about certain things. But given what's going on, I, I think in anything, in any aspect of your life, you should be tempering any certainty you have and, and, and checking it religiously because um, I, I just think this is a very uncertain world with, a, with a, a set of very uncertain possible outcomes, many of which are, are, are riddled with serious, serious ramifications for, for a lot of people. And so to be certain about anything, particularly to be that certain about a, a brand new, untested uh, currency system, asset, whatever you want to call it, I, 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 just, I just think it's a very dangerous time to blindly believe that there is no way X, Y, or Z can happen. I totally agree. All right. I want to give you um, a little bit of time, actually, to talk about your new media enterprise. Uh, we talked... <laughs> You know, that makes uh, it sound very grand. My media enterprise. Thank you. Hey, that's what it is. It's a media enterprise. Um, and, you know, I think I've referred a couple of times uh, in this show to your podcast that I've clearly listened to a number of times. So tell us a little bit about the different podcasts that you host, the overall goal for the site. I'd love to learn. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I've been writing a, a letter for uh, a decade now called Things mm -hmm. That Make You Go Home, which... Um, I've been publishing, I was publishing all the way through my days at Real Vision. And uh, under lockdown, I got, I, I literally got bored. I was sat in the house, locked down and, you know, was, was talking to friends of mine about the world and trying to understand what was going on and just thought, you know, it might be fun to record these and, and just put them out there. And so I did that. And then uh, I did a, a series of um, what I called Humanars back in May, uh, May of 2020, I guess, um, and you know people enjoyed those and, and asked me if I'd do more of those and that kind of led to the podcast um, and you know I, I I never really wanted to build a huge audience I've not gone out of my way to try and do that but what I've always been keen on is 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 finding my audience finding the people to whom what I do has value you know that's important to me I, you know, I, I put my time and my life and soul into these projects but I don't want to waste anybody's time. And there's absolutely no guarantee that, that what I think is important or useful or interesting resonates in the same way with other people. And so I, you know, I've never gone out to try and, you know, bang a drum and drag people into my world uh, because I feel like what I have to say is important. I'm much more interested in, in listening to people than I am talking, to be honest with you. Um, and so yeah, I started doing these podcasts as a chance to learn. And having spent... Uh, best part of a year putting them together you know I, I, the feedback was great the audience was 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 great and uh you know very appreciative of the efforts but again you know i, I uh, the weird thing was i started getting um, people emailing me out of the blue suggesting guests for the podcast and offering to um to sponsor the podcast uh and 
it, it, it was clear to me that all the people suggesting guests were simply they were looking at the you know the Apple top ten investing podcast, saw my podcast show up on it, and then sent a form letter out saying, "Hey, I think this guy would be great for your podcast." And and it was very clear that looking at the profile of the guest that none of them had listened to the podcast. They they had no idea what I was doing because none of these people were even remotely appropriate. I mean, all great smart people in their own right, but there was no way they were they had anything to do with the conversations I was having. And likewise, you know, the the the, the offers of product sponsorship, which were great, and you know, but but uh, the best one I got was some some. Um, eco-friendly edible lingerie company that thought that they, they'd be the perfect sponsor for my audience that's a shoe in for your audience right yeah, yeah exactly what i know about them yeah so i just you know i just thought you know i i, I don't want to do this just to build a big audience to to find a sponsor and it just it's just not who i am and it and never has been and so uh you know i thought long and hard about it and i decided that what i was going to do was was put the podcast behind a paywall and um mainly because i thought you know if I if I do that, uh, all the people who've been emailing telling me how valuable this podcast is to them, you know, for ten dollars a month for you know two between two and four podcasts, it's not an awful lot of money. If this thing is really valuable to you, then it has a value, and that value isn't zero. And so I thought, you know, if I do this uh, and nobody thinks it's worth ten bucks. I'll just stop doing it. If it's not worth it to people, I'll just stop doing it. And that's absolutely fine by me. I'll use the time to do something else. Um, but, but, by, but by doing that, and, and I've found myself over recent years moving very quickly away from free and back towards paid because I, you know, I went through, like everybody, I went through that period where you're paying for stuff and then suddenly this world opens up and there's so much free content and um, you get deluged with free which is great until you realize that by the time you get half an hour into a podcast and you realize I'm taking no value from this, that's half an hour of your life gone that you're never going to get back. And so, you know, I've always been very happy to, to pay to support people that, whose content I, I find valuable. Um, and so by finding an audience that finds value in what you do, it, it does several things, right? It, it, it makes sure that you're not wasting your time. It makes sure you're not wasting your audience's time. And it puts pressure on me as a content creator to come up with content that maintains a high enough bar that people don't get stale or think, oh, you know, this is not as good as it used to be and I'm not going to subscribe to it anymore. So that for me, in terms of shrinking my audience and, and, and you know, taking the tens of thousands of people who were listening to it every week and down to, you know, five, six, seven, eight thousand, whatever it may be, was for me a very liberating experience because i know now that i'm talking to people who value what i do i there's a there's a contract here that i'm going to continue to provide you with valuable content um and you know i have to say the response has been has been fantastic and uh you know i'm 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 glad i did it i i totally understand the people that say well you know you should be doing this for free um because you know i i i, I shouldn't have to pay for this stuff and i, I get it i totally get it uh but, you know, at the same time, my time is valuable to me. And the older I get, the more valuable that time gets to me because I've got so, so much less of it. And so I just, I just felt it was an honest transaction. You know, I'll, I'll put my heart and soul into creating something for you that I, that I hope you will find valuable. And if I do, then it has a value. And if it's not valuable to you, then you shouldn't pay for it. And frankly, if it's not valuable to you, I'm saving you valuable time by you not listening to it because you can go and spend that hour doing something that is valuable to you. 
so that was you know, kind of the thought process behind it and it's um you know i i i i i hoped i knew how it would go but i didn't know but i also knew that if you know one guy decided he was going to pay for it then i've i'm doing something completely that's wasting everybody's time so i should stop but the response so far has been has been great and um you know the dialogue i've had with 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 that community becomes that much stronger because you realize that you now have an audience of people who who do value that content and and do want to contribute to make it better and are happy to criticize you where it's warranted and make suggestions on how to improve it and i and i just think that makes it um a better a better proposition for everybody yeah well you're talking to someone that has two subscriptions that they pay for one is spotify and the other is grant williams well, so that's very kind of you thank you very much i, I, but I and i'll thank you on behalf of spotify too <laughs> exactly um grant this has been just a ton of fun if people want to figure out more about you listen to your stuff potentially subscribe what's the best way for them sure to easiest way it's all in one place now which is uh um, www.grant-williams.com and the only social media I use is Twitter you'll find me on there at T-T-M-Y-G-H and that's it nice and simple awesome Grant this was a lot of fun thanks so much for making the time oh, Michael I've really enjoyed it thanks for having me on